You're listening to Tone Benders, the sound designer's podcast. Let's do this. Hello, welcome to Tone Benders. My name is Tim and I will be your host for today. Joining us is Steve Bodecker. Welcome to the show, Steve. How are you doing today? Excellent, excellent. I mean, I'm working out of my studio at home in San Francisco, so uh, all's well. <laughs> excellent. Steve is a celebrated sound effects editor, re-recording mixer, and sound supervisor with three Oscar nominations under his belt for two really different films. He was nominated for both mixing and editing for the international humongous movie blockbuster Black Panther and also for the much smaller Robert Redford film, All Is Lost, which had almost zero dialogue and is a sound design masterclass in how to build tension. Today we're gonna to be talking to him about an entirely different film and genre, The Dissident, a documentary about the murder of Saudi journalist, Jamal Khashoggi. Uh, can you just tell us quickly about the, the plot of the film? Um, well, it's pretty much just kind of unraveling all the mystery of what happened to Jamal Khashoggi as he disappeared into the, the Saudi embassy in, in Turkey. Uh, the interesting part about it is that so much of it happened kind of in the cyber world, I guess you could say, via Twitter and email and things like that, but also behind closed doors. And so trying to discover basically what it was that had happened. Yeah, so the film is about him going into the embassy, and that's all the footage you have. That's correct. You have the footage of the front doors, Yeah. and the rest of it all has to be built from whole cloth, and uh, you have to come up with the sounds of the stories that are being told, and also just the sound of, as you mentioned, the cyber world. A lot of it visually is just Twitter accounts showing up on the screen, and how did you tackle that element of it to make it dynamic sonically? Well, that was actually one of the biggest challenges because the story was actually evolving as we were making it. So the news was changing. They were finding and clearing new information that was going into it. So as that stuff kept changing, and as those sort of Twitter feeds and things like that kept changing, all of the sounds and the sync of it had to keep changing. Uh, but the other thing that was really interesting is that Brian, the director, really wanted to keep the the story as... I'm, I'm trying to choose my words carefully, as engaging as possible. Um, it's, it's extremely interesting and it's very emotional. And so you need to always have in the back of your mind what it is we're talking about. We're talking about the murder of someone and we're talking about something that's a very politically delicate situation. So you wanna keep the story kind of engaging and interesting I don't want to say keep it exciting because the story itself is exciting, but like you say, so much of it takes place in sort of this cyber world and behind closed doors. Uh, we were constantly kind of going back and forth trying to find out where the edge of exciting was and where it started to get into feeling slightly disrespectful. You know what I mean? So that was actually one of the biggest challenges of the whole thing. So did you feel like you crossed the line and have to pull it back sometimes? We did, actually. There's a section that we called Bees and Flies, where it's explaining the whole back and forth and how the um, how all these things that were happening in the cyber world and how they were kind of um, um, communicating over Twitter. To explain it to the audience in a way that was engaging and interesting, sort of exciting, but maintain a sort of respectfulness. Um, they called it the bees and flies because it's sort of like certain accounts were attacking other accounts. And it was, it was represented graphically through these visuals that were very interesting. And it was bees and flies. The temptation was to make it as exciting as possible. And I definitely went down that road and we all got super, super excited about it. And then we played it back for ourselves and we're like, yeah, this is, this is big movie blockbuster kind of feel. 
And then Brian, to his credit, he was just like, I think we need to chill it out a little bit. Brian Fogel, the director. Yeah, yeah. And we started chilling it out just mix-wise. The content was still the same. And then we were talking about it, and it's like, you know what? Yeah, it's, it's got to be engaging, but respectful. That was what we were kind of using that almost as our mantra for the entire project. So something that I think is interesting about your career and as related to this film, Black Panther is a huge sound team. You have lots of sound editors, you have multiple re-recording mixers. This documentary, the entire post-sound team is listed as you <laughs> in the credits. Is that correct? Like you did everything? Yeah, yeah. There's nowhere to hide when that's the case. Um, and I would love to take complete <laughs> credit for all of it. But uh, the reality is there was a big picture editing. I think there were four editors altogether. And I might be wrong. I think there might have even been more. I didn't actually get to meet them. Different ones were responsible for different things. It made it challenging because they also had different tastes in what they thought the sound should be. But they also enthusiastically were doing a lot of work on the sound before I ever received anything. So it was really helpful for me as a guide to what kind of thing they were looking for. But also, um, oftentimes, some of the sounds that they had chosen stuck and they stayed and they had been in the cut for a while. That helped a lot because as the story was evolving and as the visuals were changing all of the time, it was nice to know that when a new version got turned over. Either the sounds that they liked were still there, or they were a good guide for me for where I needed to put stuff. Um, when you're in the middle of mixing and they've made picture changes and you're like, I don't know, do we stop for the picture changes or do we keep mixing? And, you know, there was a number of times where I was doing either some late nights, getting things updated or some weekend time to just get prepped for the next bit of mixing. Where did you mix it? Up at Skywalker, yeah. It was interesting because it was a, over a year ago that I was really doing most of the work on it. It was over the holiday break. And the interesting thing also about this project is that there were multiple hardcore deadlines. So <laughs> I'm working over the break. We had to get ready to do a mix to kind of get the submission to some of the festivals. And then once it got into festivals, we had to do another mix to kind of go for those festivals. And then after the festivals, there was new information and new things that they wanted to do with the movie. Uh, so there were some edits, there were some music changes that the composer had wanted to make and that the director wanted to make. And so there was, it was just this kind of constant evolution and you never were really sure where done was going to be. <laughs> so, uh, and then of course the pandemic thing came up. Very lucky for me, I because I'm also a musician, I have a studio in my house in San Francisco for movies like Black Panther. I usually would spend several days or a week or even more doing sound design in my home studio because it's much more musical and I can kind of get out there with some things. I have all kinds of props and things around and instruments. Um, so I was kind of set up to be able to work here. What we ended up doing is we mirrored my studio here to my studio at Skywalker. So I'm logging on to the same servers and everything is going back and forth. So as additional updates to the movie came up, I was able to keep going. I was hoping you could kind of talk us through what it was like having to deal with all the different types of media that are used in this documentary. You have clean sit-down interviews, another character tells his story while walking through downtown Montreal, and then you also have voice messages, surveillance cameras, archive footage. How'd you pull that all together? The tricky part was in the scenes where there was multiple different things taken from different sources that all needed to play together as if it was one thing. Sometimes you were getting narration that was recorded in a hotel room or even in a studio uh, that was going to 
have a couple of lines that were from like a phone conversation. And so those you needed to kind of have a nice balance to go back and forth. Other than that, though, if it sounded like it was, you know, the recordings over a telephone, it was okay that it had some of that stuff. But it was just like you say, it was just getting the intelligibility there. I think the other thing that was a little bit tricky is sometimes those production sounds where you have um, like they're on trains and, and walking through the city, you have some reality sounds and you want to augment those with some additional stuff to kind of get a little bit more of a cinematic feel. That was another kind of fine line of dancing around how much we want to do where we're very strict to what we are hearing on the location versus how much we're going to augment it. So uh, that's always a tricky thing with documentaries anyway. I mentioned in your intro the blockbusters you've worked on, but this is not your first documentary. In fact, it's not even your first documentary with this director, Brian Fogel. You two collaborated on the sound of his last film, Icarus, which won the Oscar for Best Documentary in 2018. Can you kind of talk about your relationship with Brian and how things changed from the last film to this one? The last one, Icarus, I got asked to kind of come on. They were already kind of into the sound process and my schedule had opened up and they asked if I could put some, do some time on it. And Brian and I really kind of got along and definitely had a good uh, rapport as far as the stylistically the kinds of things that we both liked. So I did a little bit of work on that and obviously that did really well for him. And that was a very interesting film because that's one where you can just watch where the documentary sort of takes control of itself. If any of you have had a chance to check out the film, but it's a very, very interesting to step back and think about like, how did we end up here? You know, because it starts off about a guy like who's like a, you know, retiring pro cyclist and kind of exploring the world of steroids and all of a sudden who knows where we end up. So when I had heard that he was going to be doing a story on the murder of Jamal Khashoggi, it's, it's a story that I had been following in the news. I found it very interesting. It also was very much a motivation for me to switch to an electric car and to get solar because I was starting to feel like our government, the American government, was kind of tiptoeing around the idea of the Saudis and oil. And I just figured that I would be best to sort of do my part and kind of get as far out of that as I possibly could. But anyway, when I heard that Brian was going to be doing a documentary about this, I got very intrigued and very excited. And um, it's another one where the story sort of took you where it wanted to go. Um, however, unlike Icarus, it sort of was pretty well established before you started. Something that the film does, uh, and I'm assuming... Well, I know this choice was made long before it got to you. They know what happened inside the embassy because there are audio recordings. But the documentary doesn't ever play any of the audio recordings. The way we learn about it is people who have heard the audio recordings tell us what they heard. Did you ever hear the audio recordings? <laughs> um, no, I did not. I, just like anyone else, was always wondering if that was going to be something that I was going to get to hear. And I don't know what the state of that was. That's another thing about this project is because it's a very, very, very touchy and delicate subject. I received information as it was put into the movie and I'm happy for that. <laughs> I'm perfectly fine with knowing whatever it is that has been cleared for me to know and that the world knows. I suspect, I wish I could remember the woman's name who... The UN investigator, Agnes Calamar. She did such a great job conveying that information. I feel like, and I'm just, this is the way I feel the way anybody else would, that perhaps it wasn't even a fight to get into about whether or not to put 
those in. And I'm just speculating because I don't know for sure. But I do think that because the mantra that we had so much was to maintain a respect for what we're talking about, that it might be gratuitous and unnecessary. But I don't know. That's me speculating. I would not want to hear them personally. And I'm thankful that we didn't hear them in the documentary. The way that the documentary plays it out Almost like the Jaws theory that it, the idea of the shark is scarier than the shark. Well, that's what I find to be one of the most satisfying things about doing sound for movies is that you can create in people's imagination something far more terrifying than they could ever see, you know, because we each have our own fears and our own baggage and things that we bring to our lives. So when you can paint a picture in someone's mind of something terrifying, it's always going to be worse. To hear the UN in inspector investigator discussing the recordings and then imagining what they would be, I don't know what would be worse. What I imagined they would sound like or what they truly did sound like. Um, I'm like you. I'm glad I didn't get a chance to hear them. Uh, but I have to say, I probably wore a hole in the carpet pacing back and forth the first time I watched that section of the movie because I just was positive it was coming because I knew that it existed. And the woman was describing it. And I'm like, I don't know if I'm ready. So I'm thankful that I didn't get to hear it. So the idea of tension in a documentary is kind of a unique thing. That's not something that we always think about with documentaries. And you've really created attention because at the beginning of the story, we know what happens. Like, we know he died. But there's a maybe 20-minute section of the movie where the characters in the movie know he's in there but don't know what has happened. And we're right along on the ride with them, even though mentally we know what happened. How, how did you go about building that? Yeah, well, fortunately, Adam, the composer, he does. he's just an amazing composer. And I've had a chance to work with him again on something else. And he came up for the mix at, at one point. And I, because I have a music background, I love to have my sound design sometimes work with and sometimes work against the score, depending on what it is that we're going for. So they were always really good about keeping his music in the cut so that, you know, nobody was getting used to some sort of temp track or something that wasn't going to be there. Now, granted, his music kept evolving, but it generally would evolve in the same style and even key, perhaps, as what I, I had heard initially. So I was able to kind of work with that and work around it. That's a big part of the tension that was created was like the way the sound and the music were kind of coming together. Now, as far as those scenes go, a lot of it was keeping it as simple as possible. When she's standing outside waiting for him, it's pretty much what you hear there and some music. We added some uh, photographers and things like that as, as they were kind of coming in going from the gates. We added some sort of sound design sweeteners and things for the doors closing and that kind of stuff. But that was pretty much documentary, documentary, as much as we possibly could. What do you prefer working on, documentaries or dramas? I like changing it up a lot. That's one of the things that's really interesting about this career is that you have so many opportunities to go down so many different paths. After The Dissident, I worked on this movie called Extinct, which is by the Simpsons guys. And it's for kids. And it was like as far from the dissident as you could possibly get. Um, it was an emotional palate cleanser, you might say. So, uh, and a great time. And it's actually supposed to come out soon. I, I, might, I know my kids are super excited to check it out. So, you know, I, I like kind of bouncing through all of them. They all have their excitements. They all have their pressures. 
uh, once you get sort of tired of doing one thing, you've got something else to go to. So what would you say was the most challenging part of The Dissident for the soundtrack? Probably the most challenging part would be the, the fact that it was ever-changing. And it needed to be. And most documentaries actually are. It's like they, almost every time you hear about a documentary and you get excited about something, they say, oh yeah, they're going to send you a locked picture on such and such date. And there's no way in hell it's going to be locked. <laughs> um, because they, they're constantly changing and they're constantly evolving. And unlike a regular narrative film where you go out and you shoot what you have to shoot with the actors and then they all go on to their next project and then you cut it together and you make your movie... Obviously, in the cutting room, those things kind of can evolve and change. But with a documentary, it not only can it evolve and change in the cutting room the way a narrative film would, it'll evolve and change as new footage is uncovered. And as the news plays, I would get home at the end of the day and I'd be watching the Rachel Maddow show on MSNBC and she would start talking about Jamal Khashoggi. And I'm like, oh, a new cut's coming. A new cut's coming. <laughs> so there you go. Before we wrap up, I just want to walk down memory lane with you for one second. When you were first reached out to about uh, All is Lost and you were told the idea of the film, what were your thoughts about the role sound was going to play? Were you crapping your pants or were you super excited? So I had heard a little bit about it and then I got a chance to talk to JC Chandra, the director, who's an amazing, awesome guy. And I consider like a, a friend, a good friend from the stuff that we've done together. But I talked to him on the phone and I, we talked for like 45 minutes. And I think I spoke for 45 seconds of that 45 <laughs> minutes. Uh, his enthusiasm for what he was in the process of making was so great and it was so infectious. But also what he was describing he was answering questions that I had before I had a chance to ask them. And he was always answering them with like the best possible answer he could have given, you know, like I, he's talking about all the sounds that they needed and blah, blah, blah. And then he would say, before I had a chance to ask about the dialogue, he'd say, oh yeah. And there's only three lines of dialogue in the whole movie. And one of them is fuck. <laughs> it's like, oh my God, that's way better answer than I was hoping for. And I didn't even ask the question yet. Yeah. The other thing that's interesting about that project is we, totally reconfigured how you would do it because they didn't have a lot of money, first of all, but also you can't split it up in a traditional way. JC didn't want to have a lot of music in the movie and what little music there was, he wanted to be very much under the real world stuff as much as possible. There's a couple of exceptions, but so there's very little music it is very low. Um, there's very little dialogue. So you can't do a traditional dialogue, music and effects break. So what Brandon Proctor and I did is we decided let's split it up between Robert Redford sounds. We call him Bob, by the way, <laughs> Robert Redford sounds and the boat. So I took the boat and the real world that kind of exists around the boat. So anything that our guy, the character said, his breathing, his Foley, things he touched, uh, stuff that he picked up and put down, uh, anything that was involved directly with him, Brandon was taken care of and anything that was like the world and the atmosphere around him, the boat, the sails, the wind, the, you know, the water, all of that stuff I was taking care of. And then I also did a bunch of sort of mysterious sound designy stuff that was kind of supposed to hand off to the score when it came and went. So that's a very, very long winded answer to your very short question, but there you go. <laughs> That's it. It was a great answer. I loved it. Uh, a few years ago, we did an interview tour of Footstep Studios. Oh, yeah. Uh, which did some of the Foley for that film. 
they do a lot of Foley. And when we got to their water tank, they were just like, this is where we did a lot of All is Lost. Oh, man. And they, like, it's clearly a film they're very proud of working on. So as you should be as well. Yeah, the stuff that they did was so great. I, I, it's still shocking to me to this day that all of the different elements came together and they sound like they're all part of the same thing. And when Brandon and I were working on stuff, like Brandon took the Foley and we had to have Robert Redford loop breathing for the entire movie because, I don't know if you know this, but they shot the movie in the Titanic tank in Mexico which is actually on land. It's got like, it's like an infinity pool, but it's on land. And so to get the waves, they had jet skis going around. <laughs> the tank itself is next to a highway. So almost nothing that was recorded was actually usable. So we had to replace all of his breathing. We had to do Foley for all that stuff. The production recordists did go and record a bunch of stuff on the boat, but we actually went out uh, with Richard Hims, the supervisor. He arranged for us to go out on a sailboat. And so we went out and almost died because it was a very stormy day. Wow. <laughs> but recorded a bunch of stuff out there. And just all these different things from all these different sources came together and somehow worked. So there you go. That's awesome. Thank you very much for talking to us today. Uh, I encourage all of the people listening to go see The Dissident because it's a masterclass in tension, in storytelling, and the fact that it was being built as the story was actually happening is really mind-blowing to me. I can't imagine how many revisions that entailed, but uh, congratulations on your work on it, and thanks for talking to us today. Oh, yeah, yeah, thanks. Anytime. Bye. Thanks so much to Steve for telling us about The Dissident. Before we let you go for this episode, I want to throw another interview at you all. A few years ago, my co-host Teresa and I did a road trip to Montreal to interview a bunch of the people doing amazing sound work in that city. Some of the episodes we got out of that road trip went on to become some of our most popular episodes ever, including our talk with the sound team from Arrival in episode 83. We also talked to the sound team of Big Little Lies in episode 98. But for some reason, another really great interview we did on that trip got all ready for release and then fell through the cracks. So we're going to write that wrong today. I'm going to play you an interview with Corey Rizzos, a busy re-recording mixer based in Montreal. He is a super interesting guy that we got turned on to because he mixed a doc that we loved called Resurrecting Hassan. The director and location recordist of that documentary were on Tone Menders previously in episode 57, and they told us how great Corey was. So finally, without any further delay, we are releasing this interview. I hope you enjoyed as much as Teresa and I enjoyed being a part of it. I want to send out a sincere apology to Corey for this taking so long to be released. It's a damn shame that it took this long. So now, on to our talk with Corey Rizzos. So are you from Montreal? I am originally from Montreal, right. yeah. Did you go to school for film or anything like that? I never studied film at all. Like I was a, uh, I, I, in university I studied uh, literature and psychology and I took a couple of communications courses and I just never really like locked into like, you know, doing the whole film studies thing, you know. And, um, but I was always an audio geek because my dad was an audiophile. He had like, you know, high-end audio systems when I was growing up and I used to play with tapes and like played music with like, you know, various bands and stuff like that. Audio always fascinated me, but it wasn't something that I was like concentrating on. And um, I remember like at one point in my life, I was kind of lost. I didn't really know what I wanted to do. 
and um, I ended up having a work injury. And during that period of, I guess, uh, convalescence, I was rethinking, like, you know, what it is that I wanted to do. And I had, and I just had the bright idea, oh, why don't you go to audio school? Like, you know, you have the opportunity to do that. It, it just ended up working out that that's what I ended up doing, you know, and, uh, and I excelled. Like, I, I really enjoyed it. And then from there, once I left audio school, I couldn't get a job in the post community. Forget it. Like, it was out of the question. And so I ended up getting a job, set, like, selling high-end audio gear. You know, and it was at that point that I started to like get introduced to the audio community. So I was meeting musicians, I was meeting post guys, uh, I was meeting all kinds of people. And at the time, Avid or like Digidesign at the time had, I think they had like sound tools, like it was a two track like right? system yeah, yeah. at that point. And they were just <laughs> coming out with like a four track version of Pro Tools or something like that. Mind blowing. Uh, I was actually working for a place called Richard Audio, and he ended up like getting the line, and we started to sell it to the audio post community, you know. And I don't know what it was about that tech, but it was like the whole Apple computer thing with Pro Tools and all of that that really excited me, and I really locked into it. And then they started to show, like, talk about like you know video and how like you know you could mix and sound design and do all this stuff with Pro Tools. So I was like there at the very beginning. You know, so it was really exciting for me to see all of that. And then eventually, um, I think I sold so many systems to so many different people in this city that Avid as like, you know, a prize for selling X amount of gear, they gave me a Pro Tool system of my own. So I became one of the first freelancers in this city to own their own Pro Tools. So when you were the only freelance sound guy with his own Pro Tools rig, what happened next? I managed to get a job working at a premium sound as an assistant editor. And, you know, I brought up the fact that I had my own Pro Tools. They needed a Pro Tools system, like an addition, because they, I think, you know, they were, they, were, they were fairly large at the time, but, you know, they allowed me to bring in my own Pro Tools. And uh, essentially, like, I think they were using it, and then I was, like, working as an assistant, you know. So I was, you know, back in those days, like, you know, we were mixing off a of D88s and, like, a Lesis, I can't remember, ADATs, ADATs right? That's yeah. what they were called. So, like, you know, part, part of my job was to, like, actually go through the D88s and start making cue sheets. And, like, you know, you had to log all this stuff manually. It was, like, you know, I, so I started at, like, pre-digital, you know. And Pro Tools was mostly used for sound editing. But it wasn't used for mixing at that point, you know, it was like, and it wasn't even used as a dubbing system at that point either. It was really just an edit system and then you'd print all your effects like onto D88. So I was doing all of that stuff, you know, taking everybody's edit, putting it down. And when I started, I, I was crap. I mean, like I was told, you're a really bad editor. And I was like, yeah, you know, and I ended up, I think like at one point, like premium got rid of me because I was terrible, you know, but that propelled me. Eh? I think that was probably one of the better experiences that I ended up having is like being told that you're terrible at your job, that you shouldn't be working in this business. And, you know, as harsh as it was, right, being told that it propelled me to continue like wanting to do this because there was something inside of me that loved this so much that said, I'm not going to take no for an answer. So I just kept doing my thing. And then at that point, like, you know, I had my Pro Tools and I started to get little jobs, you know. So I was getting jobs editing. I was getting jobs, uh, you know, working in the documentary community, like uh, either editing. Sometimes it was like doing little premixes and stuff like that. And it was all P 
piecemeal stuff that just kept like, you know, propelling me forward and always getting better. And eventually I locked into, um, there's a company here in Montreal. They're one of the bigger documentary uh, companies. Uh, they called I Steal Films. And I started to edit like pretty much like all their documentaries, like doing all their sound. And uh, it's through them that I gained the kind of experience that I have today. So that's, uh, that's pretty much how it started. And then once film sort of like dissipated, like at that point, like, you know, I'm, I'm pretty much mixing like all their stuff, you know. And if I need a bigger facility, I go into a bigger facility or, you know, I'll just mix here. So that's the thing about uh, the kind of setup you have, which I think is more and more common. There's mm -hmm. a lot of, I, I know a lot of mixers in Toronto who are working that way, working at home and they're bringing their mixes somewhere else when they right. need to have a bigger space or more right. facilities or right. something like that. Um, do you feel like it, that you get a different working relationship because you are not working out of a larger facility with the restrictions of the facility? You know what I do? I find that my, my relationships with the people that, you know, my clients, my directors, uh, production companies is much more intimate. You know, it's a much closer relationship. Um, you know, for example, like uh, when I was working with Carlo, like, I mean, you know, Carlo was like sitting right next to me for the majority of like, you know, the whole pre-mix and mix stage. You know? That's Carlo Guillermo Pro, yeah. who is on a previous episode of Tone Benders. So. That's right. Yeah. And he, uh, you know, it's for me, like uh, when I'm when I'm doing my final mixing process, like I, I ultimately want that. Like I want to be with the director. I want the director to be implicated in the decisions and that we're collaborating together, you know, from that point of view. Because, you know, I mean, uh, when you're on your own and you're working on your own, you, you can get sidetracked very easily. You can just go in a direction that isn't necessarily, like, you know, in, in alignment with where the director really wants to go. And it doesn't mean that my decisions are wrong. It just means that what I'm choosing isn't necessarily where it's supposed to go, you know. And uh, when I have when I have a working relationship or a close working relationship with a director like that, it, it helps me focus my energies and then I sort of become of service to them, you know, and that's ultimately what I want to do, right? It's like I ultimately want to be of service to somebody else and not just like, you know, do my own thing because, like, you know, you leave me to my own devices, I'm going to go like completely left field, you know, and then I just need to be reeled back in, you know, because that's, that's part of our job as well, right? Like, you know, we like tripping out on this stuff, right? Like we're sound geeks, man, you know, like we want to, we want to do crazy sound design, we want to do all of this stuff and sometimes we just go too far and that's that's normal I think that's par for the course like in our business you know and for the most part I was just gonna say like you know we were talking about like do I have any schooling in film I don't everything that I've learned is like through the filmmakers that I work with and I think that's why I like working with directors and like with me closely is because it gives me an opportunity to get inside their heads right and it teaches me right so I'm always learning man always 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 learning and that's the beauty of being able to work with filmmakers so when carlo was on uh our podcast he talked about what it was like working with you because the way he wanted to work was not your standard handed off and uh if you want to talk a bit about that yeah resurrecting hassan was uh i don't know if it was unconventional it, it was unconventional from the point of view that um you know, having a director actually do some of the sound design. You know, I had Carlo set up in another room, like at the time I had my own facility. 
and I had him set up in an edit room and I was having him go through like, you know, sound effects banks and start to lay in various sounds for his film, you know, because, you know, everybody, every person I find has a different sensibility to different sounds. And Carlo, what I really loved about his choices uh, in general is that he had done a previous movie that I mixed for him that was called El Huaso. It's a film about his dad. And he had done the full sound edit at that point, and he brought it to me to mix. And it was the first time that I ever worked with somebody who had, like a director who had cut all their own sound, like completely. And his choices were so unconventional that they were actually really, really good. And I was just like, man, I would have never thought of like choosing those types of sounds. So then when we worked together on Resurrecting Hassan, I said, this is a great opportunity to do a kind of a similar thing where he goes through his film and he's choosing moments to choose various textures. And I was doing the same thing. So like I was doing the dialogue edit while he was like going through his film and choosing various textures. And then once I finished the dialogue edit and the premix on that, I ended up like going through the film and like choosing more ambiences and then and then it became this process of like bringing in his material, my material, bringing everything all together and then like, you know, blending it all together and making choices at that point. Yeah. So I, do you want to tell us about your dialogue chain, uh, how you go about? Yeah, I, it, it varies. Like it's never like I can't really say that I have a standard chain, but like, you know, one, I guess one of the chains that I do use is like, you know, I'll have a cedar. Uh, that I put in on a dialogue track and now in my case I know some guys you know they'll just have like one cedar on a dialogue bus and then everything passes through that I don't do that I keep cedars on individual channels it really doesn't take up a hell of a lot of CPU at this point it's like it's nothing basically so I just have all my cedars like right across all my tracks if I have 12 tracks of dialogue I have 12 cedars if it's 24 tracks I have 24 I stick in, I use compressors. I, I, I tend, like now, like I, I enjoy using, um, what is it, the Avid Channel Strip. Uh, so I use that a lot. So that becomes like a standard compressor for me. And recently I started to get into using uh, the McDSP SA2 plugin, which I think is like, it's an amazing plugin. And it, I find that it takes a level of harshness out of like production dialogue that's recorded like for documentary and it really, it smooths it out, man. Well, uh, Corey Rizzles, thank you very much for sitting down with us. I think this is really great. I really love your room. I'm amazed at how big it is in here for uh, a home-based studio. I've never seen a room that's this big and it sounds great in here. So thanks for inviting us in and uh, we'll talk to you soon. Thank you so much. So grateful to meet you guys. Thanks so much to Corey for giving that interview. I got to have dinner with Corey and we had possibly the best pizza I've ever had in my life. So he will always be close to my heart for that memory. I want to send a big thanks out to Iziel Huard, who volunteered to help edit and mix this episode. He is a sound designer currently living in Edmonton, Canada. He's a Foley mixer at Little Hook Sound and a sound designer at the indie game studio Caldera Interactive. You can track him down at his website, I-S-A-E-L-H-U-A-R-D.com. Thanks so much for helping us out with this. Okay, everybody, talk to you all soon. Tone Beggars is produced by Timothy Muirhead, Renee Coronado, and Teresa Morrow. Theme music is by Mark Strait. Send your emails to info at tonebenderspodcast.com. Follow us on Twitter via at the Tonebenders and join Tonebenders Podcast on Facebook. Support this podcast. You can use our links when you shop with Amazon or B&H or leave us a tip. 
Just go to ToneBendersPodcast.com and click the support button. Thanks for listening. If you are interested in more pro audio related content, stay tuned to hear what other members of the Audio Podcast Alliance are releasing. To learn more and find links to other shows similar to ToneBenders, go to audiopodcast.org. Hi, this is Michael Helms, host of the Location Sound Podcast. My recent guest is production sound mixer Jimmy Seiska, based out of Los Angeles, California. We talk about recording sound on the Bravo series Below Deck Mediterranean and the Amazon series The Pack, hosted by Lindsey Vaughn. Check out the latest episode. I'm Dallas Taylor, and I'm the host of 20,000 Hertz, which is a podcast all about sound. We revealed the untold stories behind the Netflix audio logo, the Price is Right theme song, Star Wars, and tons more. Here's a clip from one of my favorite episodes, The Wilhelm Scream. Wilhelm has become this sort of go-to sound effect that represents a lot more than just the one sound. It's fascinating how many of these sounds are actually reused over and over and over. If you think you've never heard the Wilhelm scream, you're almost certainly wrong. It's in Star Wars, Toy Story, Lord of the Rings, Beauty and the Beast, Cars, and hundreds of other films. The actor who recorded this scream was actually kind of famous. So we're, we're like 99% sure it's... It... To hear the rest, subscribe to 20,000 Hertz. Once you see the purple logo, tap subscribe. I'll meet you there.